Is Boris Johnson's career finally, yes, finally over? There are two stories today which suggest it might be. So there was an awkward three-hour evidence session to a select committee into Partygate. And then I think actually potentially more significant, um, a real rout in Parliament when it came to the Windsor framework, a phrase I hate using, but there we are. Um, I am delighted to be joined today by Maurice McLeod. Uh, Maurice is a Labour councillor in South London, and you're a policy advocate at Unjust UK. Our audience have um, seen you before, Maurice, but not with your current title, I think. Do you want to explain what Unjust UK is? Hello there, Michael. Um, yeah, so Unjust UK, uh, we're a relatively new body, been around for about two years. And, and as it says on the tin, our, our job is to fight systemic racism in the criminal legal system. So all, 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 all the good stuff that, 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 we're, that we're aware of, all the areas um, where criminal justice impacts upon black communities more harshly than everyone else. Later in the show, we're going to be talking about the Casey report. Obviously, we talked about it a bit yesterday. Going to go into a bit more detail about the issues of, of institutional racism and also some of the responses um, to that report since last night's show. First story. It was billed as a blockbuster select committee, if there is ever such a thing. I have to admit, for me, three and a half hours felt a little bit long. It could have done with some editing. Luckily, um, our researcher, Stephen Meffen, has done some of that editing. We're not going to show you three hours of Boris Johnson blabbering on just the key bits, the bits you need to see. Of course, I am talking about the House of Commons Privileges Committee interrogating Boris Johnson, former Prime Minister, over Partygate. Um, we'll show you the key moments from that grilling in a moment. First, let's remind ourselves exactly what this is all about. And important here is that the committee aren't investigating which rules were broken during lockdown, which were, which weren't, etc., etc. But instead, the more specific question of whether Boris Johnson knowingly misled Parliament. Now, these are the three misleading statements made by Boris Johnson. Mr. Speaker, uh, what I can tell the right honourable gentleman is that uh, is that all guidance was followed uh, completely during number 10. I understand and share the anger up and down the country at seeing number 10 staff seeming to make light of lockdown measures. And I can understand how infuriating it must be to think that the people who have been setting the rules have not been following the rules, Mr Speaker, because I was also furious to see that clip. And Mr Speaker, I apologise, I apologise unreservedly for the offence that it has caused up and down the country, and I apologise for the impression that it gives. But I repeat, Mr Speaker, that I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged that there was no party and that, and that no Covid rules were broken, and that is what I have been repeatedly assured. Will the Prime Minister tell the House whether there was a party in Downing Street on the 13th of November? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, no, but I'm sure that in, in whatever happened, uh, the guidance was followed and the rules were followed at all times. Now, Boris Johnson has now admitted parts of those statements were untrue. But his defence is that at the time he made those statements, he didn't know they were untrue. So he only unknowingly misled the House. Now, this was how he opened his evidence session today. I'm here to say to you, hand on heart, that I did not lie to the House 
When those statements were made, they were made in good faith and on the basis of what I honestly knew and believed at the time. When this inquiry was set up, I was completely confident that you would find nothing to show I knew or believed anything else, as indeed you have not. I was confident, not because there's been some kind of cover-up, I was confident because I knew that is what I believed, and that is why I said it. To understand why I believed it, you have to go back to a time before the Sue Gray report, before the police investigation, back to a time where, as the evidence before the committee shows, there was a near universal belief at number 10 that the rules and guidance were being complied with. That is the general belief that has been uncovered by your evidence. And it was that belief that governed what I said in the House. And as soon as it was clear that I was wrong, and as soon as the Sue Gray investigation and the Metropolitan Police investigation had concluded, I came to the House of Commons and I corrected the record as I promised I would. So he's saying he's been acting honestly at all times. Yes, rules were broken, but how was he to know they had been broken? No one else at the time realised. And as soon as he did realise that his own rules had been broken, he corrected the record. Now, to interrogate that account, the committee focused on photographs of six parties and the corresponding rules and guidance in place at the time. Remember, the pertinent question is whether Boris Johnson would have known rules were being broken, because if he would have known that rules or regulations were being broken, then that would imply he had knowingly misled the House. Um, here's committee member Bernard Jenkins asking Johnson about a leaving party held for special advisor Lee Kane on the 13th of November 2020. Can we move on to examine the compliance with the COVID rules at this gathering? Uh, uh, as we heard in the clips earlier, you told the House the rules were followed at all times, so you must have thought the gathering was reasonably necessary for work purposes, as was then required by the regulations. We know that the gathering attracted fixed penalty notices. Uh, so, in fact, the police have judged that it broke the rules. Why did you think it was within the rules? I thought it was essential for work purposes, or reason, at least reasonably necessary for work purposes, because for the reason I've, I've given Sir Bernard, that uh, we, November the 13th was a day in which uh, two senior officials, in those senior advisors in government, uh, had, had left their jobs in very, very difficult and challenging circumstances. And... It was necessary to steady the ship. It was necessary to show that there was no, uh, no rancor, uh, that uh, the, the business of the government was being carried on. That's what we had to do. That's what I had to do. I, I know that, but it's, it's what you said about it to the House of Commons is what matters. Um, we know it was a leaving event for a member of staff. The photographs we've just seen yes. do not seem to show any actual work being done. Uh, why did it not occur to you that it at least might have been in breach of the regulations, not least because it was not reasonably necessary for work purposes? You've all heard the phrase, you know, could this meeting have been an email? I think that could probably apply here. Could this party have been an email? If, if you want to prove to your staff that this person leaving doesn't mean that there's any rancor and everyone can still come together and work together effectively, given... Um, you yourself had implemented a lockdown and put all these rules and regulations in place. Perhaps you could have just done that in the form of a, a round robin instead of inviting everyone for wine and cheese. Um, Lee Kane, who was the subject of that exchange, came up again. Um, committee member Yvonne Fauvag 
asked Johnson about a gathering in the garden of 10 Downing Street in May 2020. Lee Kane said he briefly attended the gathering and that in his view it's clear from observing it that it was a purely social function. Did you share that view? Uh, no, and that's certainly not what he said at the time, uh, because if he thought that it was purely social and therefore against the rules, it is inconceivable that it would have gone ahead. The Metropolitan Police have confirmed that fixed penalty notices were issued in relation to that gathering, so we know it breached the COVID regulations. We know that you knew what the regulations were, and we know you were in attendance. So it would have been obvious to you when you were there that the gathering was not essential for work purposes and was partially a social event, wouldn't it? Actually, I, if, I'm, if I'm with great respect, uh, Mr. Fevarg, I want to dispute the idea that it was uh, not an essential gathering or not a gathering that was reasonably necessary for work purposes. I don't know why the FPNs were issued, but it may be that they were issued to people who uh, had uh, not a good enough reason to come in from home uh, to that gathering or people who had come uh, from elsewhere to that gathering. But uh, my, my firm impression, I think it's certainly still the case that uh, Martin Reynolds believes that that gathering was within the rules and indeed within the guidance. Would you have advised anyone else in the country if they'd asked you at one of the press conferences at that time to have a large social gathering in the garden? It, I, it was not a large social gathering. It was, a, it, was, it was a gathering intended, and I really must insist on this point, People who say that we were partying in lockdown simply do not know what they are talking about. People who say that uh, that event was a purely social gathering are, are quite wrong. My, my purpose there was to thank staff, to motivate them in what had been a, a very difficult time and what was also a very difficult day in which the cabinet secretary had just resigned. It was a very difficult day. They had to have a party. Lots of people are obviously having a very difficult day, um, especially in the NHS at the time, and they weren't having these garden parties. Now, as I say, key here, Boris Johnson wants to pretend that even if rules were broken, he didn't know about it. I mean, here he's saying they probably weren't even after the effect, even though fixed penalty notices have been issued. Um, key here, especially in terms of what he may or may not have known at the time, is uh, testimony from other advisors. One of them is Lee Kane, as I said. Um, this is a BBC report as to what Kane said to that same committee. Kane said he raised concerns about the gathering with Dominic Cummings, Johnston's chief advisor at the time, saying Cummings agreed it should not take place and pledged to raise the issue with Martins, that's the civil servant, and the prime minister, is at the PPS. Um, in his written evidence, Kane wrote that Cummings later confirmed that he'd informed the PM, but they had argued about other issues and he was clearly very frustrated. Kane says he does not recall if he personally had a conversation with the PM about the party. However, he says it would have been highly unusual for him not to have raised a potentially serious communications risk with the PM directly. I suppose you can see how that is not really smoking gun evidence, even if I think most people watching these uh, this testimony from Boris Johnson isn't particularly sympathetic towards the man. Um, hours before Johnson's questioning began, the committee released the evidence given by members of Johnson's team, as well as emails and WhatsApp messages that they'd received. So, you know, some more physical evidence for the inquiry to look at. Now, some of those exchanges came up in Johnson's interrogation. Alberto Costa asked Johnson about messages from his communications director, Jack Doyle. If you turn to page 79 of your evidence bundle, 
saying he said this at if the time. If you turn to page 79 of your evidence bundle, you will see a selection of WhatsApp messages sent by Mr. Doyle. These messages are discussing the gathering of the 19th of June 2020 that marked your birthday. Mr. Doyle says that he was, and I quote, struggling to come up with a way that the gathering was in the rules and that he was, quote, not sure it would, quote, work to suggest it was reasonably necessary for work purposes. Were you aware, Mr. Johnson, that your trusted senior advisor, as you've put it, Mr. Doyle, doubted whether this gathering was within the rules? So, uh, no is the answer to that question. I wasn't aware that he'd sent that WhatsApp. He didn't send it to me. This was, I think, on January the 25th, uh, which is um, long after uh, we've started the the process which was to become the Sue Gray. I think the Sue Gray inquiry was already well underway. A couple of other quick points, if I may, uh, on uh, that, that WhatsApp. Um, Jack was not at that event on the 19th of June uh, 2020. Uh, he knew nothing about what had actually taken place. He was then relying on media descriptions of that event, uh, which had subsequently emerged. And uh, yes, uh, he sent a, a, a message to uh, someone else uh, saying he needed to work out uh, what the, the justification was. But just to go back to the, to the June the 19th event, 2020, which we've been over several times, at the time, I thought it was so innocent uh, that uh, it, was, it, it was actually briefed out to, to the I time. I appreciate that, but I want to know, I'm talking about assurances you were given, so let me focus again. So how can it be that Mr Doyle, and this is the, the point I think is important for the inquiry to understand, how can it be that Mr Doyle, one of your principal advisors, your trusted advisor, the person whose assurance you relied on in the House of Commons, was himself clearly doubtful about the compliance of this gathering with the rules. But you continue to say that you were not. How can that be? He, he wasn't at that event. Uh, he was struggling to uh, contend with media accounts of it long after that event and after the, uh, the Sue Gray inquiry had already begun. And above all, he did not even at that time, let alone before I stood up in the House of Commons, raise with me any concerns that he might have had about that event. I mean, what's clear from all of these messages is that everyone in Downing Street struggled to find ways of justifying the claims that guidance was followed at all times, right? So for him to say, I'm sure guidance was followed at all times when you've got his advisors saying, how can we say, you know, I'm trying to work out what the, how we say this followed the rules. It doesn't seem particularly consistent. Um, I suppose as is to be expected from this guy. And um, let's look at another WhatsApp exchange involving Jack Doyle. So this is the, the communications um, advisor. Um, this time it's after Pippa Krarar, um, I think from the mirror then, now the Guardian, began asking questions about lockdown parties. Um, this message exchange takes place the day before Johnson made his first statement to the House of Commons on the 1st of December. Jack Doyle um, in a WhatsApp says, Pippa sending an email about drinks in number 10 last Christmas, leaving do an Xmas drinks party. So that's in quotes. Um, she has dates. Um, he says, can you pull together our best possible defense on this one? I don't know what we say about the flat. 
Um, don't we just do a generic? So then someone else says, don't we just do a generic line and not get into whether there was a drinks thing or not? COVID rules have been followed at all times or something along those lines. Jack Doyle says, I think we have to say something as robust as we can manage, but see what you think. And then Jack Doyle says, key thing is there were never any rules against workplace drinking. So we can say with confidence, no rules were broken. Ignore the Xmas quiz bullshit. Who cares? Just be robust and they'll get bored. Now, as we know, they didn't get bored. Um, so this story ran and ran and ran until Boris Johnson had to resign. So they don't strike me as the most competent group of people. I suppose that's potentially in Boris Johnson's defense. Um, if he's saying this was all uh, unknowing, if this was an accident that he misled everyone, if he's being advised by these idiots, I mean, maybe that's more plausible than it otherwise would be. Um, another interesting bit of evidence concerned Johnson's principal private secretary, Martin Reynolds. He was asked about his advice to the Prime Minister before he made his statement to the Commons on December the 8th. So that was after the leak of Allegra Stratton laughing about a Christmas party. You saw that um, earlier in this segment. Um, Johnson had been giving a prepared answer stating that all rules and regulations had been followed. But Reynolds um, told the inquiry he'd queried the line saying this. He did not welcome the interruption, but told me that he had received reassurance that the comms communications event was within the rules. I accepted this, but questioned whether it was realistic to argue that all guidance had been followed at all times, given the nature of the working environment in number 10. He agreed to delete the reference to guidance. So the reference to guidance was ultimately deleted from his written statement. But as you saw um, in that clip we showed you earlier, when he was asked questions, um, he, he said, I'm sure that all rules and guidance were followed. Um, so if if the you know if we were to take Martin Reynolds' evidence as gospel, um, then that really would be the smoking gun evidence. Um, unfortunately, as far as I understand, this is not written down or in a WhatsApp somewhere. Maurice, how how should we approach all of this? You know, in a way, it's a little bit tedious. Just this, this, every time Boris Johnson is back in the news, I'm like, oh god, this guy again. Um, at the same time, I know lots of people still feel very strongly about this because of how significant and emotional a period the COVID pandemic was. And what's your take on this? So I tuned in today uh, and, I, and I must admit before, and I did it because I knew I was coming on to talk to you and I thought, oh, I better pay attention to, to, to what Boris was, was saying. And, and I think like a lot of people, I'm, I'm really bored of the detail of these parties and this, that, the other. And then I started to, to, to listen to him and... And, and and a lot of the anger came back again. A lot of the, um, I, I think partly because he was sort of, I forgot about the the the, the sort of the, the confidence that he uses. The way that he sort of sat there, you could tell he'd come to play because he combed his hair, um, and, and he sort of sat there and, and 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 first of all lectured the the committee on what they should or shouldn't be asking him, and and then was you know was just sort of the, the whole pomposity and the. The, the trying to trying to to tell us that the parties that we'd seen him having were in fact not parties and were not in breach of the rules that the very rules that he sort of made um, when you know that that very thing's already drummed him out of office but he still he still got the confidence to sort of sit there and and, and control the room and, and and whatever and it made me it made me really angry it made me remember. You know all the sacrifices that we all made, and the, the people that were lost, and and that this this sort of laughing buffoon was there just getting on with it. I think that, that so so as much as I and and I'm sure a lot of people are really bored of hearing about Partygate and whatever. I think it's it's pretty bad news for the Tories to have to have to have this up again and have people remembering 
you know just what went on um so, so yeah m- mixed feelings um I'm, I'm glad i'm glad that this show made me watch it because it reminded me of the anger I, I hope there aren't any more three-hour boris johnson interrogations coming up i mean unless they're like a bit more dramatic than than this one um i wouldn't mind you know some fisticuffs not in a sort of provoking violence way but something just a bit more only a bit more drama um than we got there um as you mentioned i mean i think why this does still strike a chord, even though we've been talking about this for such a long time, is because people remember all of the important sacrifices they made during lockdown, you know, not seeing um, elderly relatives, not seeing loved ones, not seeing people who were passing away, not going to people's funerals, right? So then when you see that the people making those rules had a very laissez-faire attitude, that really pisses people off. Also, um, I think what really pisses people off is how similar events were treated when other people were breaking the rules or what happened. Um, I saw this shared again on Twitter today. It's part of an article from The Spectator in 2022 um, referencing sort of how other people were treated that weren't in number 10. Um, so they write, a student in Leeds was fined £10,000 for organising a snowball fight. A beggar was fined £434 for having his cap out at King's Cross Station. A homeless man was arrested at Liverpool Street Station for being outside without a reasonable excuse. Staff at a London chip shop were told to attend a business meeting during the second lockdown when work meetings were allowed. They all received a fine because the police decided the meeting could have been held online. A Devon landlord held a Christmas gathering for staff on the same day as the Downing Street Christmas bash and received a £4,000 fine. Now, of course, you know, the the argument you hear from the Tories when it comes to these parties is, you know, we were working hard, we were all in the same building anyway, um, so why not have a party? potentially makes some sense epidemiologically but you had these people who were all working together in a pub you know people in pubs also work very hard and they weren't allowed to have a party they ended up getting fined four thousand pounds so it's the the double standards and the duplicity and i think to be honest if, if we're talking about you know from an intellectual perspective i'm bored of this story right but from an emotional perspective there are lots of people in this country who are still very traumatized by the experience of covid maybe that's because loved one dies maybe that's because they got ptsd because they're working in the nhs maybe it's because they got depressed because they hadn't been able to see their friends for such a long time right really really traumatic time for lots of people and why this story struck a chord is because it felt like a big f you from the people who we were sort of listening to and following their advice you know whether you were labor or tory you listened to those those got the, the guidance that was told to us by the scientific advisors and by boris johnson and most people followed it right Right? So, so people very annoyed um, that that he didn't. And I do think this this constant inability to just own up to how unacceptable it was, how they behaved, has sort of just carried on the trauma. I think if Boris Johnson could just say, look, right, the details, whether or not I misled the House here or there, you know, we can disagree. But the point is, the big narrative arc here is that while people were making these sacrifices, we, myself included, weren't living up to the standards we were setting for other people. And therefore, um, I'm going to you know, resign as prime minister, which you should have done earlier. And I'm probably not going to stand at the next election. Um, but I hope people can remember me for the, I mean, his decisions he made during COVID were terrible, but I'm putting myself in his shoes. I hope people can re- remember the, the important decisions I took and then he can list some ones he's proud of. I, I think that's what someone with integrity would do who doesn't want to sort of extend the trauma of COVID-19, which I think Boris Johnson really is doing. And I'm over it. I'm bored of it. Um, we are going to move on to another Boris Johnson story, but only because this one, I think, has a silver lining, which this, I think, is the end of his career. Boris Johnson's Partygate testimony to a committee of MPs was embarrassing, but there was another event today which even more clearly showed his career is over. It concerned the Windsor framework, that's the deal about trade between Britain and Northern Ireland, which Rishi Sunak agreed last month with the EU, and which was today voted on in Parliament. The vote was viewed as a test of Sunak's authority as his two predecessors were leading 
a rebellion. Liz Truss and Boris Johnson were against it. They wanted to vote against the Windsor framework. This is Boris Johnson's explanation of why he made that decision. The proposed arrangements would mean either that Northern Ireland remained captured by the EU legal order and was increasingly divergent from the rest of the UK, or they would mean that the whole of the UK was unable properly to diverge and take advantage of Brexit. This is not acceptable. I will be voting against the proposed arrangements today. Um, so that's someone who we think of Boris Johnson still has a big following in the Tory party, even if much of the public have fallen out of love with the guy. He's standing up saying, I'm against this bill. One might think that's significant and puts Sunak under severe pressure. Um, that opposition, though, to the deal from Boris Johnson led Northern Ireland Minister Steve Baker to make these comments to ITV. So really, both of them should be backing, uh, backing the Windsor framework today. And what I would say is... Uh, they're both better than this. We're partly, we've reached this point thanks to Liz Truss setting the process in train. And today's measures are better, of course, than the protocol that Boris Johnson put in place. A protocol uh, which he spoke about and those things he said turned out not to be accurate. So, you know, he's got a choice. He can be remembered for the great acts of statecraft that he achieved, or he can risk looking like a pound shop Nigel Farage. And I hope he choose to, chooses to be remembered as a statesman. That's pretty cutting, um, especially from someone who was a bit of a Brexit headbanger right now. He's saying that he's, Boris Johnson has chosen to be a pound shop Farage. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg is on Boris Johnson's side. This is how he responded. Steve Baker, former ERG chair, has now obviously Northern Ireland minister, has basically compared Boris Johnson to a pound shop Nigel Farage uh, by opposing the Windsor framework. Are, are you a pound shop Nigel Farage? Oh, I would take that as a great compliment. I would like to be the Woolworths of Nigel Farage's. Wolves, of course, went bust 14 years ago. So potentially, actually, a, a better analogy than Jacob Rees-Mogg realised. Um, in any case, as you can see, this became a bit of a war of words, pitching Johnson and his allies against Team Sunak. And for Boris Johnson, it ended in overwhelming defeat. The Northern Ireland deal passed by 515 votes to 29. And a, a rebellion led by Johnson and Liz Truss could muster the support of only 22 22 out of 355 Tory MPs. So a pretty pathetic rebellion, all things considered. Um, Maurice, we talked about the, you know, the, the Partygate investigation and whatever. I think that's that's how the, the public fell out of love with Boris Johnson, or for those of people for those people who, who who like the guy, obviously always been a divisive figure. This to me seems like the real evidence that you know, his political career in Westminster's over. If Boris Johnson, you know, the big figure of the Conservative Party, lots of party members apparently, you know, think this guy was stabbed in the back. They they want him to have a comeback. If he can only muster a rebellion of 22 people, including himself, to like a, a big bill that was supposed to be the big rallying cry of the right of the party, I mean, is it is it over for him? I think I think you're right. Um, I think the, the whole Partygate thing, he'll bumble away through that and you know, and, and and whatever, but this, um, I, I, I'm sure happy being hated and loves to be loved, but to be sort of irrelevant, just to be, oh yeah, a little sort of a rump of 22 MPs that that because of how Sunak has moved the party to be, well, I guess, a little bit closer to to Starmer's party. That there's there's no there's there, there's no relevance to them. They're not they're not important anymore. Um, I don't see. Um, I, I've been, I was fearful of Johnson somehow blustering his way back to to being in charge if if Sunak failed in some way. I can't see that now. He's looking more and more pointless. 
more and more pointless. That's what I like to hear. We've got agreement. Boris Johnson is over. Um, you can clip that and share it on Twitter if it turns out that he becomes leader of the Tory party again. I'm, I hope I am not proven wrong on this one. Going to move on to a, I mean, what, let's be honest, is a much more important story, even though, you know, this is a politically dramatic day. But the next story, um, I think, is what really matters. Louise Casey's report into the Metropolitan Police is so damning, you might think change is now inevitable. If an official review has found the force to be institutionally racist, misogynist and homophobic, surely the Met can no longer resist root and branch reform. And yet, we've been here before. This was the front page of the Daily Mail on the 16th of February, 1999. It says, judge accuses racist police, and it reports on the findings of Sir William McPherson that the police were, or the Metropolitan Police, sorry, were institutionally racist. The McPherson inquiry was launched by the then Labour government in response to the Met Police's failure to properly investigate the racist murder of Stephen Lawrence. And that judgment of institutional racism was supposed to have transformed policing in Britain. It's often talked about as a watershed. But according to the Casey Review, not enough has changed. It's sort of gut-wrenching to know that essentially you've got racists in the organisation that you're not rooting out. You've got people experiencing racism in your organisation that you don't care enough about those officers to do something about it. You've got systemic bias that they agreed, Mark and Lynn agreed in October that there was systemic bias. And then, of course, you've got the very clear evidence that the black community in particular in London, both historically and to this present day, is over-policed and under-protected. And there I go to this sort of addiction, really, uh, of, of the police, certainly in London, to stop and search. And so if you just look at those four things and the evidence behind those four things, they tell you that we haven't really grasped what McPherson was talking about. We've not really ever seen the trust in the black community in London go up in relation to policing. And what we now see, the data tells us, is that, of course, other Londoners are joining that group in their experience of policing. It's such an interesting account, which runs through that report. So she's saying, look, the police is still treating black and brown people terribly. And what we're actually finding is that more and more groups are now finding themselves in that category of not trusting the police. So obviously the report, especially focusing on women, misogyny, um, also talking, as I say, about race and racism and talking about homophobia. Um, let's for now focus on the race element. So some findings in the report included the following. Black, Asian and ethnic minority officers made up 17% of all Met officers, but 46% of the population of London. So you can see um, it's not nearly proportionate to the population they're policing. And um, Black officers are 81% more likely to be subject to a misconduct case than white officers. So even if you join, um, you're more likely to have a hard time. 46% of Black and 33% of Asian Met respondents report personally experiencing racism while at work. And only a third of Black Londoners are confident in the Met's ability to treat people fairly and equally. So 36% of black Londoners are confident in the Met's ability to treat them fairly and equally compared to 62% of white Londoners. They're just sort of four stats um, within that report. Um, the report and the coverage around it has also prompted an increase um, in coverage by journalists of racism within the Metropolitan Police. Seema Katecha is UK editor for Newsnight. She 
tweeted this on the day of the report's release, incredibly shocking. Met police called institutionally racist. I've spoken to several officers of colour. Just got some examples. Black officer said he'd been called monkey and a banana was left on his chair. Asian officer said he was told he smelt of curry and needed to wash because looked dirty. Now, if you think this sounds like the 1980s, she says both say happened in recent months. And then she goes on to say South Asian officer said when he complained, he was told by bosses it had been joke and he should laugh it off. Officers describe boy club culture where discrimination deeply embedded in culture and banter. This resonates with Louise Casey's report, people who complain not taken seriously. Um, Maurice, I want your thoughts on this. And especially, I mean, we are 24 years now after the Met was first found to be institutionally racist. You know, if you said at the time, oh, how long will it take them to sort this out? I can imagine people saying, you know, two years, three years, six months, 24 years, 24 years later, and uh, sort of really important report has has said they're still institutionally racist. So what's what's gone wrong here? Uh, yeah, so I, I was um, I was a reporter. I think I might have been political editor back then um, of The Voice uh, when this when when McPherson came out. And as much as I don't think anyone, uh, we certainly didn't believe it was going to be a massive change in police. And it did seem like a really important moment. You know, the the thing that we've been saying you know, about institutional racism had, had been proven as far as we could see. And that, that, so that conversation was over. And now we were going to, you know, maybe argue about how you cure that or what the, what the different tools might be to cure that. Um, and instead, it's, it's kind of felt like we've, we, we did all the low-hanging fruit. We did the, the stuff that, that McPherson asked for about um, trying to increase diversity within the police force by you know, recruitment and retention and all those sorts of things and training and 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 um, we introduced the 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 sort of independent scrutiny of the police, which uh, you know I, I won't say much about, but I, I, I think it isn't really doing its job. But you know, if you look at who who makes up those panels, um, so so the stuff that we've done is very is very cosmetic. Um, and as you said earlier, the, even even then we haven't, you know, the police haven't got to the diversity figures they want. But I kind of feel that the diversity goal was a bit was a bit of a mistake in that instead of instead of saying right, we really need to fix these deep rooted things, we found institutional racism. We need to you know root that out of the institution. We've allowed um, we've allowed. The conversation to be about you know how many black officers are there and 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 things like that and so and so we haven't really seen the the, the sort of deep rooted changes that that were needed and so you know just two years ago we had Cressida Dick you know commissioner of the Met at the time saying that you know there there was no institutional racism and even with this report coming out now we've still got the current um, commissioner and. I think the Prime Minister agreed and the Home Secretary did that but they're still not happy with with even saying the words institutional racism. So um as much as there's a load of anger around this report, quite rightly so, and I, and and it's um I, I think that the the thing of the point about other communities being made aware of what um of the problems within certainly the Met Police, but policing in general in, in Britain, other communities being made aware by the awful thing that happened to Sarah Everard and 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 LGBTQ uh, groups being aware of how they're mistreated, 
all of that means that there there is more noise now than there was in the past. There is more anger now than there was in the past, but it feels like the same kind of anger. It does worry me that unless you genuinely embrace the need for systemic change, for, for institutional change, and I think that means a total reimagining of the police. I don't think you do that by, you know, putting a few black officers in or going on a bit of training. I think you need to completely think again about how communities are policed and why communities are policed and who they're policed by and how those police are scrutinised and how the communities have a say in in how they're in how they're policed and 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 how you know how resources are spread around their community do we want more money being spent uh, um on policing or do we want to go further upstream and make sure that we've got community centers and resources um there's such a long conversation um and 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 i'm afraid because we haven't really had it and and, and because there's such a, a, a determination not to talk about as I say, institutional issues, because they're so determined to talk about bad apples, we only really scratched the surface and 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 here we are 24 years later. I want to look at a couple of clips um, from commentary um, after the report's release, which sort of touches on a couple of those issues. So one, this, this question of um, institutional racism and, and misogyny, and then also what root and branch reform might look like. So let's start with that first issue, as you said, and the Met Commissioner has refused to accept that the police are institutionally racist, misogynist and homophobic, as Suella Braverman did when she spoke in Parliament. Um, speaking on Newsnight, Louise Casey, so the, the author of the report, gave this response to Rowley's reluctance to use the term. In a way, I wish I'd been a little bit ahead of this and I'd written something that said, it's organisational, yeah. it's, it's institutional, it's systemic. Like, which word out of the sothorus, of those of us that can remember those, what word would you use to describe this organisation? I've put four tests in. I've been really, you know, trying to find a way forward. Yeah. Basically, across misogyny, homophobia and racism, and let's take race, if you have racists working on your police force, and you know that you do, doesn't mean to say everybody no. working in the police force is racist. Let's grow up. That's not what I'm saying. But you have some. If you have officers and 49% of black and ethnic minority officers experience racism regularly, a third of the women mm -hmm. uh, experience sexual harassment, uh, of, uh, 19% of officers who will say they are gay and therefore can be surveyed have experienced homophobia. So whichever way you look at it, Mr Rowley, you have racist, misogynist and homophobia yeah. so, in your organisation. So why are we arguing yes. over this word? And, and I just want, I want to come back to you too very much. I just want to, to, to say this. Do you think Mark Rowley has to own institutional problems in the Met before he can, he can move forward? So the... One of the most fundamental problems that he faces, that we all face, is if you don't own the size of no. your problem and the truth of your problem, you can't change. And there are black people all over London tonight, people like Doreen Lawrence and many others. Honestly, Kirsty, they've waited a long yeah. time for a new commissioner to come and to use that word. It means so much to them. It means so much to Londoners. You know, I'm almost begging him to sort of go and meet a load of black people and come back and tell me that their lived experience isn't on the receiving end of institutional racism. And in a way, that's his way out tonight. Go through a process of listening to Londoners and come back and own the problem. Now, what was really interesting about Louise Casey's sort of 
media interviews is that in the morning, so when the police had just been, not the police, sorry, when, when the report had just been released, Louise Casey was speaking, you know, in very damning terms about what she'd discovered, but she was speaking in quite hopeful terms, actually, about the, the Met's current management. So she was saying she, think Mark, she thinks Mark Rowley is, is very well placed to sort of implement some of her recommendations and, and start to deal with the problems in the Met Police. By the evening, um, she was basically saying, this guy is not taking on board uh, to the extent I would like to see the, you know, the findings of this report. So it's, it seems like actually, you know, his media reports, his refusal to to accept that institutional problems were at play um, has uh, has meant that she's lost a lot of faith in the guy from, you know, the period of the morning to, to the evening on the day of the report's release. I want to now show a clip um, concerning what root and branch reform might look like. There have been suggestions that it's time for the Met to be disbanded and replaced with something else. Um, one precedent here is the experience in Northern Ireland. In 2001, the Royal Ulster Constabulary was disbanded and replaced with the Northern Ireland Police Service. And again, this clips from Newsnight, Kirsty Walk spoke to a police officer who was in the force in Northern Ireland when they made that change. I was the second last Royal Ulster Constabulary squad, so within the first two years of my career we had the Police Service of Northern Ireland. That name change, uniform change, complete rebranding. I think the thing that I would probably say is that that would never have happened if it hadn't have been for external pressure mm -hmm. and for others making us do it. We would not have moved as far forward by ourselves. So I think the, the Metropolitan Police Service needs a, a radical overhaul, uh -huh. similar to so what we had in Northern we'll, Ireland. We'll just quickly on that, because obviously it was a very particular set of circumstances in Northern Ireland, but more generally in terms of treatment of people, treatment of victims, services for, you know, pastoral services for police officers as well. Did things change? Did you get also a host of new recruits who would never have come into the police before? No, completely. I mean, look, we actually um, brought about positive discrimination to bring in Catholic officers. And mm -hmm. in the first 10 years of the PSNI, we literally went from 8% to 32%. So working and living through that, you know, we've seen a, a large influx of people with different attitudes, different thoughts and different perceptions about what the police mm -hmm. is in their community. So that empowered people to speak up, that empowered yeah. people to share their experiences, and it fundamentally changed the culture within the police service of Northern Ireland. That was Andy George speaking. He's currently the president of the National Black Police Association, and he was speaking there about his time as a police officer in Northern Ireland. Um, Maurice, do you think disbanding the Met and replacing it with a new force, with a new name, would that make any difference or you know could that just be a rebranding exercise what definitely needs not to happen is, is simply a rebranding exercise i think that that's that if yeah I, I i can understand arguments to to completely disband the met and and i think that that might well be the way things have to go because i don't think you can sort of fix this ship while it's in motion i think you you need to sort of go okay what are we trying to do here what's the actual purpose of police in our communities what what you know obviously to stop crime but how how should that be working and and literally start start again from scratch now that's not a small that's not a small endeavor obviously i i, I appreciate that but but at least accepting I, I think we need to we need to accept that 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 we can't fix this 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 huge uh, institution this whole huge embedded historic organization um, um sort of by 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 just sort of tinkering it needs to be a proper roots and branch rebuilding that that needs that needs to be, needs to involve the communities that are being policed that certainly needs to involve the communities that are being uh, um impacted by 
by the problems in, in current policing. Um, now you can call it, you can call them what you want. That's not the, that's not the important thing. The important thing is how are they going to be structured before we can get uh, trust and, and confidence as, 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 as the Mets seems to be going for, you need to have accountability and transparency. You need you need to be able to fix things first, then you have trust. If we can do it that way around, then then you know, uh, you know the Met or something like called that is is savable. The twenty year anniversary of the Iraq War should serve as a reminder of the catastrophic consequences of expansionist foreign policy. It should be a reminder of how a megalomaniac prime minister and a servile press allowed a faraway country to be blown apart. However, unfortunately, our press is still servile. And so the occasion of the anniversary has been marked rather differently. I still don't believe that, that anyone has ever been able to cite an international law. I don't think you're right. I don't think the UN Charter counts as that. I, no one's ever been able to cite a law that Tony Blair has broken because if he had, he would have been indicted. Or if there was a suspicion that he had, he would have been indicted probably by the ICC, the International Criminal Court, who've just indicted Vladimir Putin. But then, of course, George W. Bush couldn't have been indicted under that because the, IC the United States isn't a member of the ICC, but the United Kingdom is. That was Ian Dale, one of LBC's star presenters, claiming that Tony Blair can't have committed war crimes because if he had, he would have already been indicted. Now, he says this argument wouldn't apply to George Bush as the United States isn't a party to the International Criminal Court, but it's valid for Tony Blair because the UK are. So if we had committed war crimes, if Tony Blair had, had committed war crimes, the ICC would have indicted him. They didn't. Therefore, he did not commit war crimes. Now, on the surface, that might sound plausible. The problem is, if you do even the most basic of research, you'll know it's bullshit. Now, the first problem with Ian Dale's comment is that he says the UN Charter does not serve as international law. Now, that's not true, as was made clear by Kofi Annan, who was the UN General Secretary when the war was launched. This is a transcript from an interview with the BBC in 2004. So the BBC said, so you don't think there was legal authority for the war? Kofi Annan says, I have stated clearly that it was not in conformity with the Security Council with the UN Charter. The BBC say it was illegal. And Annan says, yes, if you wish. The BBC repeats, it was illegal. Yes, I have indicated it is not in conformity with the UN Charter. From our point of view and from the Charter point of view, it was illegal. Right? So the UN Charter is I mean, really, the principal foundation of international law as it is today. Whether or not there's a body that can successfully enforce it is a difficult, is a different question, sorry. Right, next, Dale said that no one can state what war crime Blair is supposed to have committed. Again, that's false. I mean, saying it's false is ridiculous. It's not just false. This is the relevant clause in the UN Charter, signed by the US and their coalition partners in Iraq, so including the UK. So it's Article 2.4. All members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat of use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. Now, the practical import of this clause is that no country can launch a war with another unless they are acting in self-defense or the war has the approval of the UN Security Council. Now, neither was the case before the US and the UK invaded Iraq, which means, therefore that the US, UK and other coalition countries launched a war of aggression. 
Now, war of this is not a small international crime. This is a big one, right? This is what the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg, so everyone seems to say this is legitimate. I certainly think it was pretty legitimate, that International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. This is what they found. This is what they say about wars of aggression. Essentially, an evil thing to initiate a war of aggression is not only an international crime, it is the supreme international crime, differing only from other war crimes, in that it contains within itself the accumulated evil of the whole. It contains within itself the accumulated evil of the whole. Really important point. You know, this was obviously after Nuremberg, so there's countless war crimes committed by the Nazis, but they're saying it's, it's to start a war of aggression, which is a supreme war crime, because it, it's only once you've started a war, a war of aggression, sorry, that all the other war crimes follow, right? War crimes are committed during war. So if you start a war of aggression, then that to some degree has, has precedence. Let's get on to Ian Dale's final point. He says that if Tony Blair had committed any war crime, he would have been indicted by the International Criminal Court. The problem with that, the ICC only got the power to try leaders for the crime of aggression in 2018. And even then, Britain wouldn't fall within its jurisdiction. This is a Guardian article from 2018. So you can see the headline here, ICC crimes of aggression comes into effect without key signatories. So it comes into effect in 2018, long after the war. Subtitle here, important, UK lobbied for delay in law under which leaders could be prosecuted for going to war. I wonder why they did that. Now let's go to the article. A crime of aggression under which politicians and military leaders can be held individually responsible for invasions and other major attacks comes into force at the International Criminal Court, reviving global legal powers last exercised at the Nuremberg and Tokyo war crimes trials of the 1940s. Claims alleging that armed force has been used against the sovereignty, territorial integrity or political independence of another state can from Tuesday be taken to the tribunal in The Hague. The new offence cannot, however, be enforced retrospectively over conflicts such as the 2003 Iraq invasion. There has been international pressure to give the ICC greater powers to pursue those deemed responsible for initiating conflicts. Britain didn't sign up for this, by the way. Pretty significant. Um, so, in response to Ian Dale, yes, a war crime was committed because the UN Charter serves as international war. Yes, we can name what that war crime was. It was the crime of aggression, which the Nuremberg Trials has, is the su supreme war crime. And no, the fact that the ICC didn't indict Tony Blair doesn't mean he didn't commit the war of aggression because when that war crime was committed, they didn't have the power to do so. And even now they don't have the power to do so because Britain hasn't signed up to the relevant amendment to the charter which founded the ICC. So you can't say, oh, there's nobody with the power to indict me, so therefore I can't have committed a crime. That's not how these things work. That's not how international law works. And, you know, I'm not an expert on this. Ian Dale, I recommend you read Wikipedia. Been, been very informative to this segment. It's not particularly difficult. I didn't have to call up any international lawyers to work out what you were saying was bullshit. So wikipedia.org, type in international law, and next time you can say, something a little bit more insightful on your show, which broadcasts out to hundreds of thousands of people, I'm sure. Straight on to our final story. Rishi Sunak promised to publish his tax return months ago, but he kept putting it off. First, it was going to be before Christmas last year, and then it was going to be, quote, very soon for months. Then suddenly, while everyone was distracted by Boris Johnson's select committee appearance, he quietly produced it. Now, the return is for the 2021 to 2022 tax year. Um, Sunak paid just over £432,000 in total. What a guy. Um, Sky News reports this. Much of the tax was paid on his capital gains earnings, which were more than £1.6 in that tax year. 
the Prime Minister paid £325,000 in capital gains tax and £120,000 in UK income tax on income of £329,000. Um, now, in the you know returns, as one would imagine, there's nothing to suggest there's anything dodgy going on here. It seems like rules were followed. But it does show a couple of things. You know, One, this guy is filthy rich. We knew that already. Two, it shows the absurdity of the British tax system. Sunak paid roughly a third of his earned income in income tax. That's the kind of tax most of us pay on our earnings. £120,000 on earnings of £330,000 is what he paid. But on his unearned income, so that's the £1.6 million he, you know, got in, well, that he got in returns, he got in returns to his investments, he paid only about a fifth, right? And what does that show? Capital gains, you know, what you receive for, you know, the money that your wealth has accrued as opposed to the money that you get because you worked is taxed way less than income tax. Now, to me, that seems like a rigged system. If you go out and work, you get taxed highly. If you just sit at home and wait for the wealth you're sitting on to accrue more money, you know, to accrue more wealth, that is taxed at a lower rate. Um, Maurice, what can we say about this? You know, Sunak's not going to get arrested for this tax return. He doesn't seem to have broken any laws, but I think it does demonstrate the the injustice of the UK tax system. Um, I mean, it shows what we know that he's like the, the richest prime minister I think there's ever been, um, and 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 no wonder he has very little understanding what's going on sort of the rest of us and how the rest of us are, are struggling. I mean, when your when your tax bills what three hundred or four hundred or whatever thousand a year that's but these 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 are these are amounts that that you know there's whole streets that are, are living on this sort of money. Um, but it's not surprising he sort of put it out on a day when there's loads of stuff going going out. Um, sadly, I don't think it will have much negative impact on him. I think people uh, there's a uh, I call it a sort of societal Stockholm syndrome that we've got where where people are just quite in awe of people with with sort of money and wealth, and I don't think. It makes them go, oh, you can't speak for me. You don't understand me. It may, it, there's a sort of doff cabinness that goes on. So I don't, I don't think it will. Uh, I don't think it will have a massive negative impact on him. To be honest, he's not a man of the people. He'll carry on not being a man of the people. And we've got four minutes left, so I do actually want to get your. I didn't think I would have time to get your comments on the Iraq War 20th anniversary. Um, but I mean, that was one clip from LBC. We could probably have found a bunch of different clips from different outlets. Um, do you think the British media have learned from their mistakes? Um, when it comes to the run-up to war, uh, uh, absolutely, absolutely not. I mean, what's what's really sort of surprising? You're saying that you're, you're you're we're sitting here watching people make excuses for it and and play with words and go, okay, well, it wasn't illegal and this, that, the other, and we know what happened. We we were watching. We saw, you know, our our country sort of said to us, "There's a threat here. There's these people that have these 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 weapons that are going to attack us. We have to do this." And then they went to war, and it was a lie. That that that's. You know, we saw that. So, so however it gets dressed up now, um, I don't think you can really change change the past. But what what I worry about is the future. You know, how much scrutiny is there now? If the, the problem at the time was that there wasn't enough pressure to to prove the things that he was saying. If if in a few years' time, in our very divided world, uh, we have a a, um, a government that still isn't really going to be scrutinised if it decides to go to war, where most of the media all sorts of things from the same hymn sheet. You know, will there be, you know, will, will we stumble into some other conflict and kill another million people on the other side of the planet? Um, I don't hold out much hope that we've progressed much.
I mean, it certainly doesn't look like it, does it? When you're hearing stuff like that on LBC. I mean, the logic was just so poor. And then you're seeing, I mean, Keir Starmer inviting all the war criminals back in and kicking out anyone because they've liked a Green Party tweet. It doesn't fill one with hope that we've now got our priorities correct. Um, Maurice McLeod, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Absolute pleasure, Michael. And thank you, everyone, for watching. We had a lot of views today. Do like the video if you haven't already. Of course, we'll be back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.